Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter, Do Death. Hello, Phoebe. Hi, Dad. How are you? I'm fine. I'm good, thank you. I'm good. And you're well, are you? I'm okay. I'm (laughs) still getting over a bit of a nasty cold, but it's what it is. Time of year. Yeah, you don't sound so bunged up at the moment. No. Not quite so, so bummed up as I was last week. Good. I'm glad you're on the mend. Another cold to add to the the collection of winter colds. <laughs> yeah. I suppose with a young child. Yeah. Depleted immune with other system. Young children. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yes, indeed. So I guess you're pretty vulnerable. We'll just take care. Yes. Lots of fluids. Um, lots of rest. <laughs> yeah. Lots of rest. Along with everybody else. Just take yeah. care. Yes. My uh, FFP2 mask isn't leaving my face, so. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't got it on now. Well, no, it's true. I'm at home, aren't I? (laughs) When I leave the house. All right. Which is very rarely, to be fair. Well, there's been a little bit of true crime news this week, but we'll we'll come on to that later. Uh, Before then, Phoebe, have have you got a story to tell me? I do. It's not a particularly long story, but I thought it was very interesting. Okay. I'm going to be telling you about a man called Diogo Alves. So Diogo Alves was born in Galicia in Spain in 1810. Uh, He came from a very poor family. He grew up in complete poverty and he uh, was sent to work from a very young age, working as a servant in kind of rich people's homes, as was the thing to do with your children then. Yeah. And he said that he could kind of get some money for his family because they were, you know, totally, totally destitute. When he was young, he fell from the family's horse. They they were rich enough to have a horse. And when he did, he hit his head, earning him the name Pancada, which means blow. (laughs) Oh. Uh, (laughs) Doesn't really make much sense to me. But um, yeah, so he fell from the horse and hit his head. Make, giving him this nickname. Uh, bang on the head, child. Bang on the head as a child. <laughs> uh, at the age of 19, his parents sent him to work in Lisbon, Portugal, thinking that there'd be much better prospects for him over the border. And he picked up work doing various bits and pieces, kind of working on farms, working in houses. But after his mother died in 1834, and after struggling to kind of settle into a job, he cut off all contact with his dad and he began to spend his time drinking and gambling because that felt like a better thing for him to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if he was good at gambling, then he didn't need to work, did he? But... <laughs> well, no. It was at this point that he met uh, an innkeeper of the name of Maria Gertrudes and she also had a nickname, which was Pararina. I don't know what that means, but yeah, Pancada and Pararina were their kind of nicknames some sources say that they were lovers uh, but most sources say that they were just companions kind of right yeah friends working together sort of ish but so the kind of the inn that she worked in was not in a very luxurious part of Lisbon um saw lots of kind of dodgy people passing through and what a lot of places seem to suggest is that it was through this relationship and his exposure to these people that he was meeting in her inn that really encouraged him to start a new career as a robber. 
So oh, okay. he uh, decided that gambling was no longer for him. He was gonna he was gonna rob people to. All right. When to neither, his, neither of those careers have a particularly good pension plan with them. No, <laughs> and both of them are quite a lot of work. Yeah, like, they're they're not easy ways out, are they? In Lisbon, there's a big aqueduct called the Aguas Livres, and which was opened in 1748. It was built because Lisbon has always suffered from a lack of clean drinking water. And King John V of Portugal decided to build the aqueduct to bring water into the city um, so that they could have something to drink. The aqueduct was paid for by a special sales tax on beef, olive oil and wine. So they must have been selling a lot of beef, olive oil and wine <laughs> to <laughs> making a lot of bolognaises um, to be able to pay for this aqueduct aqueduct yeah diogo started staking out roads close by the aqueduct and choosing to target farmers really and kind of poorer traveling people who were traveling through lisbon he didn't want to target rich people because he thought that that would attract some attention so he was targeting these kind of less well-off farmers who were traveling through which is something that we've seen before isn't it that you know some killers and criminals tend to target people who would be seen as maybe less dead if they were oh, yeah, yeah. Not, um, got yeah, rid of. Not noticed not, so much. Yeah, they... not people with like families and friends and, yeah. and things like that. So uh, Diogo would rob them and blindfold them. And so that he didn't leave any witnesses, he would take them up to the top of the aqueduct and throw them off. And he did this by kind of stealing and falsifying some keys to be able to get into this underground gallery of the aqueduct that led to the top of it so that he could get people up there quite quickly and easily without being seen, without other people seeing him. While they're still alive? Um, While they were still alive, yeah. Yeah. So he'd kind of jump out on them, rob them, blindfold them, drag them up to the top of this aqueduct and then push them over the side. There was a 65 metre drop. So Oof. it was a pretty certain death <laughs> for his victims. That's like uh, just onto like feet, isn't it? Something, yeah, it? just like onto roads underneath. So it wasn't, you know, into water or a nice soft cushiony landing. It was onto a kind of solid road below. So the people that were kind of thrown over the side were were pretty mangled up when they were found and often unrecognisable. And it's thought that Diogo killed over 70 people this way, um, earning him the nickname the Aqueduct Murderer, but also making him Portugal's biggest serial killer. But he wasn't getting a huge amount of money from these people because they were quite poor themselves. So it wasn't like he was all of a sudden a kind of millionaire. He was just you know, getting dribs and drabs of money through from these people. Um, and I was thinking, you know, 70 people to find at the bottom of an aqueduct is quite a lot. Like, if you yeah. found 70 people at the bottom of an aqueduct today, you'd start to think, wouldn't you? But apparently at the time, the country was in the midst of a massive economic and political crisis ah. thanks to the liberal revolution of 1820. People were poor, people were really struggling financially. And the authorities just assumed that all of these deaths were just the result of desperate people committing suicide. So these poor people who were just taking themselves off to the aqueduct to kill themselves, because it's a pretty sure way to die. And they were just like, well, it's suicides. Wow. But with so many deaths happening, (laughs) people started calling for it to be closed to prevent these suicides from taking place. So the authorities actually closed the aqueduct 
um, shortly after kind of they hit number 70 to stop people going up there to throw themselves off, basically, is what they thought was happening. Like they had to shut the Humber Bridge during the COVID lockdowns because so many people were throwing themselves off the Humber Bridge. Similar sort of thing, I guess. Hmm. But obviously, these people weren't committing suicide. <laughs> they were being taken up there and thrown off there by someone who was robbing them. And he still had a key. And he still had a key, but he couldn't get up there because I think they, you know, they padlocked it all up. They right. made it impossible for him to be able to get up there and, and take people up there. And also, they'd shut it. So if there were still bodies kind of being found on the floor, that would look suspicious, I guess. So he needed to find a new place and a new way to commit these crimes to carry on his robbing because that was his job and he yeah. needed the money <laughs> so his solution was to form a gang that would break into houses and rob and kill the residents kind of good old-fashioned burglary i guess um, in an entry yeah <laughs> and this worked for him quite successfully mm-hmm. for some time until him and his gang murdered a doctor and his family and because of that Diogo and his gang were captured. The murders on the aqueduct actually remained unproven, but the jury sentenced uh, Diogo and his gang for other crimes. In that gang was Maria, his uh, maybe lover, maybe just friend, (laughs) who was kind of helping to orchestrate this all the way along. And her daughter, who was also called Maria, who was only 11, um, testified in court against the gang about what they'd been doing and about her mother. And her mother was sent to live in lifelong exile in African colonies. Diogo was sentenced to death and he was hanged on the 19th of February, 1841, making him one of the last some places say the last but one there's the penultimate criminal to be hanged in portugal which makes me think that you know they kind of got rid of capital punishment really quite early yeah and they used some other means (laughs) yeah his actions at the time really intrigued scientists because they'd not really seen anything like this in portugal before they'd not seen this kind of serial killing which it wouldn't have been called serial killing at that point would it but this kind of you know serial murders of people happening so after his hanging in an attempt to study his brain his head was cut off and studied scientists were trying to work out if they could use phrenology to say this is what was wrong with him and this is why he'd kind of committed these murders yeah so phrenology is a pseudoscience which involves the measurement of bumps on the skull to predict mental traits. So I think today, maybe if he'd have been doing these things, he'd have probably had like a psychoanalyst to work this out, but they figured that they could probably figure this information out better by cutting off his head, studying his skull, really, (laughs) um, and working out kind of what they could tell from his skull. It was developed by a German physician in 1796 and it was used a lot in in Europe between 1810 and 1840. It's very much seen now to be a, a non-science, but at that point and at this point when Diogo was carrying out his murders, it was very much seen as the way to find out about what was going on in some, inside someone's brain and what could make them tick and what could be causing him... To, yeah, to, to do this, to behave like this, yeah. Yes. 
So they didn't really come up with any sort of ideas as to what <laughs> why he'd done this because it turns out that actually when you cut someone's head off, you can't really find out why they did. There's the nothing in did. there really to say. <laughs> no, okay, well, no. But his head was preserved in formaldehyde, and it is still to this very day available to be seen at the medical surgical school in Lisbon. Um, So if you Google it, you can see a very clear picture of what his head looks like. It has been remarkably well preserved for somebody who was killed nearly 200 years ago. And it is really quite eerie to see. So you spell it, it's D-I-O-G-O-A-L-V-E-S. Wow. Gosh. So they didn't cut his head in half or anything then? No, that's the thing. I don't know what they were looking at because (laughs) they literally cut his head off and when you see the pictures of it, you can see that it's pretty much intact. It looks like the jar's maybe a little bit small because his lips are obviously kind of pushing up against the the front of the jar and the front of his nose. But, yeah, there's no sort of incisions. So it's real hair? Yeah, this is real hair. (laughs) Real head and everything. (laughs) Nope. It's all real. Um, and is, he, uh, his head has just been in that formaldehyde for the last, well, nearly 200 years. He, always, he looks quite pale, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he just looks like he's kind of underwater, doesn't he? It does, um, yeah. It's remarkably well preserved. Yeah. Not much neck. No. <laughs> <laughs> no neck. Um, but, yeah, no, his head has been kind of perfectly preserved in that formaldehyde for the last, well, hundred and. 80 years and making it a uh, it was one of the most significant objects of the passage in 100 pieces for the museum of medicine wow um, which took place in the national museum of ancient art in 2005 so his his skull or his head really because it's more than a skull isn't it along with that of um, matos lobo who was the one of the last people to be executed in portugal they they're both on display there at the old medical surgical school interesting Mm. very interesting i wonder what it looks like from underneath <laughs> yeah i was thinking that is there a big yeah. hole where his neck yeah very fleshy they're like in um sleepy hollow and they cut off the head and you can see all the like yeah but bits well it. yeah wouldn't it all just sort of wash out in the oh, i don't know in the formaldehyde <laughs> maybe they sewed it up i don't know but um i just thought it was really interesting that his head is still <laughs> yeah and i guess what was he 31 or something when he was uh hanged yeah 1810 to yeah. 1841 yeah so uh okay so yeah that is interesting the, uh, short but interesting story of uh, diego alves they didn't find any uh evidence of his brain having been damaged from the fall from the horse no yeah well, well, I don't know. I don't think the they. I don't think they would have got his brain out because they needed to chop his head up to do that, wouldn't they? I think they were very much interested at that point, at just looking at the kind of phrenology. So, what could his skull essentially tell them about what he'd done? Which I think the answer was not a lot. <laughs> Why did they have to cut his head off just to fill the lumps on his head? Yeah, I guess it would make it more portable. They don't need the rest of him, do they? <laughs> I suppose, yeah. So it makes it easier for them to investigate just that one bit. Interesting stuff. Thank you for telling me about that. I had no idea about that No, I thought it was interesting. And I've just found a picture of the aqueduct as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's still there. 
Uh, it is, yeah, very much so by the looks of things. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely aqueduct. Um, very high. Very high, yeah, 65 metres. You wouldn't, yeah, you'd, you'd be ill if you fell off that, wouldn't you? Will you put some of these pictures? I will. Up? I'll yeah. share the photos of the head and the aqueduct. <laughs> mm. So I think there's some uh, true crime news to talk about this week as well. Yeah, so the well, the first thing I guess we should mention is that Ronnie Spector, ex-wife of Phil Spector, has died, which is yeah. sad. She was 78. Yeah, as we talked about in the Phil Spector podcast for Christmas, she managed to escape the clutches of Phil Spector before he did her any harm and was yeah a, a brilliant singer. Is she so, the one that he gave two children to? As a adopted yes. children for Christmas, yeah. The twins. The twins, yeah. Bless her. There was a development in that French case this week, which I think is now not a development, but um, the French family who were found murdered in their vehicle some time ago in the Alps, they'd arrested somebody, which was looking promising for kind of bringing someone to justice on that case, but um, they've let him go, so... Obviously, hmm. not enough evidence to to keep him there. There's the very sad story of the Irish teacher who was murdered while she was on a run. Another lady just going about her business being murdered. Yeah, Ashling Murphy. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was a couple of days ago. But the more positive news is that they, in America, they managed to transplant a pig heart into a man. I know. It's amazing. Mm. Really, really, uh, really good progress. Because for a long time, they've been using valves, I think, for yeah. pigs. And, and as we know from our experience of uh, post-mortem live, and we looked at the heart and lungs of a mm-hmm. pig, they're very similar in size yeah. to those of a human. So uh, it makes sense. Yeah, Absolutely. So Absolutely. I guess it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be a bit controversial because the pig, while itself was still an embryo, was genetically modified so that it contained less pig genetic material and more and some human genetic material so that should its organs be transplanted into human, the human wouldn't reject it because that's always the big problem with trans- mm. transplantation that uh, the body rejects rejects it and you have to be on drugs forever to stop the rejection um and i guess if it's an interspecies transplant that might make it even more yeah did they use like um genetics from the person who that it was being transplanted into or was it just general human just general humanness i think yeah just just so so it may still reject to a certain extent but only in the same way as it would if it would come from another human right okay um that's interesting make, i think to make it a little bit more generic as it were yeah, rather than porcine so i suppose the controversy will be now should they be breeding pigs to be spare part factories for humans but on the other hand we're breeding pigs every day for sausages and bacon yeah so What's the difference? Yeah. There's um the Jodie Pico book, which is very famous, which is My Sister's Keeper, where the 
the family, their one daughter has got leukemia. So they have another child to bank the, I think it's the cord blood from, to be able to save the older daughter, basically. Right. It talks around the kind of ethics of having a child purely to keep your other child alive and uh, what that means. Just an interesting moral dilemma. Tricky. Uh, although in this case, there's some controversy around the worthiness of the recipient because apparently he has previously had a bit of a violent past and he stabbed a man back in the 80s, 1988, I think, rendering him paralysed. The man then suffered quite a lot of complications for the rest of his life and then he died about 20 years later. So, uh, so yeah, let's not dwell too much on the recipient, but on the science that has made this procedure possible because hopefully it will benefit many people in the future mm. I'm, I'm still working my way through the um the bbc series surgeons the life oh, yeah. a life on the edge and i watched one and it was a man who was having a double lung transplant it was only in his 40s or something and he had um it was a genetic congenital defect thing that caused parts of his lung to die as he was getting oh, older wow, okay. to the point where I mean, he was walking about, but he was getting incredibly out of breath. And he got the call to say that they got some lungs for wow. him. And um, they got him into hospital. These lungs had to come through. It was a two-hour road journey or something. And they got the guy, you know, all on the operating table and they opened his chest up and everything. And they even got the first lung out because they had to do one and then the other. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they had to keep ventilating the the other one while the other one first one was out and they were still waiting for these organs to arrive and they they came at the last minute and they got them out of the like the box that they transport them in but they were like inflated so when oh they'd God. been taken out of the person they'd been like literally pumped up with i don't know what whether it be nitrogen or maybe oxygen i don't know just to keep them inflated so they yeah. came out like two great people and Jeez. then they sort of undid them and of course it all Claps, but I suppose it was to help protect them or keep them fresher yeah. during transportation. They put one in, and there's only four points of connection. Oh wow! Okay, for a lung, it's the trachea itself or the bronchial yeah. connection. There's only one, one artery and two veins, I think, and that's it. Wow! So it's it's fairly straightforward, but it's a very risky procedure, and they they did it by literally making a gap about ten centimeters wide oh wow I, one on either side of his chest to get the old lung no out way. and the new one in yeah because they said it's kind much... of they'd have to like open the whole thing up well, that's you, how but... it used to be done and they'll make it a point that um when they do that it takes the patient a long long time yeah, to it's recover good massive from, they call it clamshell when they open mm. it right up but with just a sort of a slit I mean, it's a bit more than keyhole but it's you know next best thing they yeah. can get in and do it and they haven't got much room. Wow. So they had to um, put the new lung in, get that one working. Then his body was relying on the new lung to oxygenate his right. body while they took the second oh. one out. I think it was only like two days later or something, he walked out of the hospital. This oh, my guy, God. It was, it was incredibly, incredibly quick. Jeez. How old is he? In his 40s. Wow, okay. He, he wasn't old. No. 
talking of true crime and sort of rang bells with me when you were saying about the 70 people that they were finding, all these people they were finding at the bottom of the aqueduct. Four lives, the three-part oh. thing on BBC about the Stephen yeah. Port murders. Yes, one of them was from Hull, wasn't he? Yes, he was, yeah, the first one that was that was killed. Yeah. And um, three of the four bodies were all found propped up against a wall of a cemetery. Oh, okay. Two on one side and one on the other. And they, the police were just brushing it off and saying, oh, it's just where people go to take drugs. Uh, okay. But, uh, it was getting oh, that's too, interesting. It was getting too coincidental. But mm. one of them, the first one, the guy from Hull, was found propped up but outside the block of flats that Stephen Port lived uh, in. Oh, okay. I think um, it was... I meant to watch that, actually, but didn't. So, yeah, uh, cool. so, so there we are. That's uh, our roundup, <laughs> yeah. our brief roundup of uh, interesting news this week. Yes, I mean, there's been plenty of other things in the news, but we don't need to talk about them here. No, we don't, <laughs> so, I'll put some pictures on our social media pages on our Instagram, which is Dad and Daughter Do Death, Facebook, which is Dad and Daughter Do Death, and you can email us at. Dad and daughter do death at gmail.com. It is a pretty gruesome picture. Um, so just <laughs> a bit of a warning there before you go hunting them out. It's uh, it looks quite peaceful. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's his eyes being open that are a bit mm, creepy. What if those are his real eyes? Or whether I think they are his real eyes. Yeah, real eyes, real hair. <laughs> just preserved in formaldehyde. So there we go. If you've enjoyed this podcast or any of our others, please drop us a line or leave us a comment if you can on on your podcast platform. Always good to hear from you. Yes. Thank you to those of you who have been getting in touch. Yeah, always very much appreciated. So join us next time when once again, Dad and daughter do death.